I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance make sure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. Silvercore has several contests and giveaways running right now, and here's a reminder to check out the silvercore.ca website to learn more about the current Glock gear giveaway, as well as the Postal Match, which is free to all Silvercore members across Canada, with prizes which include firearms, steel targets, accessories, courses, and more. Full details on the silvercore.ca website. If you are enjoying the Silvercore podcast, please do us a favor and consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and leaving a review. Likewise, if there is content that you would like to see featured on a future Silvercore podcast, let us know. You can also check out the Silvercore Club Facebook page and join in on the conversation. Today I sit down with longtime friend Marshall Lowen as he recounts growing up in rural Manitoba and his adventures and misadventures while hunting and trapping across Canada. Marshall spent over 44 years serving his country as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. He is a firearms instructor, hunter education instructor, a proud member of the Métis Society, and served as Vice President of the Vancouver Métis Society for many years and now sits as an elder who has been bestowed with the honor and responsibility of being selected the captain of the hunt. All right, so I'm sitting down with Marshall Lowen. I'm on location, so if the audio sounds a little bit different, we're not in the studio this time. My head is spinning right now with all of the information that we've already talked about over the last couple of hours, and hopefully we can condense some of this into the podcast for our listeners. Thank you, Marshall, for having me into your home. My pleasure. Let's get a little bit of background on you. You grew up in Winnipeg, did you? Yes. Um, I was born at a very early age in Winnipeg. My father at the time was a fighter pilot overseas. So I was spent the first, first four years of my life uh, at my grandparents' house, surrounded by women. My mother, my aunts, my grandmother, I probably quite spoiled as a child, but uh, I was sort of invested with the idea that it was my duty to look after people. And consequently, uh, pretty happy childhood. We get into sort of, you know, what are your activities as a child? And I was drawn to the outdoors, which can be inhospitable sometimes in Winnipeg, particularly in the winter. <laughs> but any chance I got, it was my mom taking me and my grandfather to the parks, to the different places. Uh, got an early fascination with animals, wild animals, and sort of watching them and being interested in what they do. As I got a bit older, my dad came back from overseas with some souvenirs. Sure. He brought back several handguns. 
and a couple of rifles. And I'd already been sort of training with, uh, starting with a cork gun, going to the BB gun, going to the air rifle, improving it. In my preteens, one of the sources of income was going after the gophers in the fields. Tell me about that. It was something that kept me busy. I generally did it by myself. And off I'd go with a Cooey single shot twenty two, which was convenient in the back porch, along with a tobacco can with a fair bit of ammunition in it. And the idea was to eliminate the gophers. So the idea with the gophers was eliminate them, and uh, there was profit in it because the municipality had a bounty on gopher, on gopher tails. Right. So we didn't have to bring the gopher into the municipal hall, but uh, we had to bring the tail. So shoot the gophers, cut off the tails, and then head into town to the city hall and uh, municipal hall. And there was a clerk there who had an interesting job. I guess it wasn't his sole job, but uh, he would count out the tails you had and uh, you got two cents per tail. Sure. There was a bit of profit there because I think a box of 22 shorts at that time was about 50 cents. So I made a little bit of money. But uh, I remember my friend coming in with me and uh, we came to the sort of I wonder what they do with those tails, you know? Yeah. And we thought about it for a while, and we couldn't think that there would be actually any practical use for those tails. So what we did was thought about it, and he said, you know, I bet you they throw them out. I bet you if we come back on Saturday and go through the garbage cans, we can find the tails. So we got up early on Saturday, headed down. Of course, the office was closed and went out the back and started rooting through the garbage bags. Yeah. And sure enough, there was a paper bag and came up with the great idea of recycling. <laughs> so we ended up carrying on for quite a while. But of course, after a while, they, they started to smell. My mother was concerned doing the laundry. What? What, what I had in my genes, so a lot of them got thrown out. But it was sort of an early case of recycling. For us. <laughs> the uh, They paid more for coyotes, but it was hard to recycle a coyote because they snipped the ears off okay. the skin. But uh, Would you get paid by tail for coyote as well? Uh, no, just, uh, just got... I, th I think it was like $2 for a coyote. But okay. uh, as I say, you couldn't take it back twice. They, they give no. you the skin. They just cut the ear, uh, tips of the ears off. So okay. if you brought a skin in with the ears, they knew you'd already been paid for. <laughs> <laughs> They're getting wise. <laughs> yeah. You know, the recycling in those days, you know, they, they think recycling is a new thing. But, you know, <laughs> having a wood fire and, uh, you know, my grandfather worked for the railway from the time he was 15. And, uh, you know, the wax paper that the bread came in, 
was used to wrap the sandwiches and put in the lunchbox, and it came back, and when it was no longer good for that, it was okay for starting the fires and the oh, yeah. thing. So recycling wasn't something that was new. It uh, Basically, all the milk bottles were glass, so they all got recycled. They all went back and got washed and reused. Yeah. So you started hunting and trapping at a pretty young age. Yeah, we... Besides the gophers, I used to set up snares for the rabbits. They were mostly either cottontail or snowshoe hares. Right. And uh, I'd, getting into going to school, and particularly in the wintertime, I'd set out the, go out in the evening and set out the snares in the runways and the snow. And then uh, on my way to school in the morning, uh, collect the rabbits that had been snared. And then for change of pace on the weekend, I'd take my twenty-two and go out and hunt rabbits and take some tin foil, you know, aluminum foil and some salt and pepper and uh, practice making a shelter, eat the rabbits. Well, how old were you <laughs> when you were doing that? Um, anywhere at that time, probably 10 to 12, I think. Shot my first deer at about 14. Okay. That was... Uh, expedition where I had an older friend who was like 15 so he was able to drive okay I don't think he had a license but uh, <laughs> didn't matter because we we're basically in the country and he had a little Austin A40 I'd uh, just acquired a 303 Lee Enfield okay I'd headed down to Army and Navy they had them on I think for $12 or something like that and down in the basement of Army and Navy was racks of these war surplus 303s. I think I had like $15 with me. No taxes in those days on sales tax. And anyways, bought the rifle. The ammunition was full metal jacket. It was <laughs> in boxes, you know, five cents a round. Right. So take that and... The only thing the clerk was interested in is, did I have the money? Wrapped it up in paper, got on the streetcar, took it home. And um, no one batted an eye, of course. No, no. I mean, it was natural. It was a case of, you know, obviously a person wanted a gun. They needed a gun. Right. What was the problem, you know? So from there, we basically sawed the excess wood off it and sporterized it, as they call it today. Right, yes. <laughs> and filed the tip off the uh, full metal jacket, and we drove out into the country, and soon we came across a buck standing on the side of, uh, down in the ditch. One shot, boom, he went down. Shit, we better get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> So we dragged the deer into the back seat of the Austin, <laughs> piled that in, climbed in on top of it, and drove to a cabin that we had and decided, well, we better gut it. Sure. So hung it up <laughs> the wrong way. Okay. Uh, we figured, well, do you hang it up feet first or head first? Right. Said, I think. You hang it up head first. Okay. So that was easy. Put the rope around the antlers, hoist it up. Now what do we do? 
Well, I guess we cut it open. Yeah, but it isn't going to make a mess. Well, get a wash tub. So <laughs> get a wash tub, put it under it. You're doing this inside? Yeah, inside. Okay. You know, we didn't want anybody to see us. Sure, sure. So, okay, so what do you do? Well, I guess you just cut the stomach open. Well, Suddenly, the guts all over the kitchen floor. All Whoops. Over. Most of it hit the area. What we hadn't noticed was there'd been a fresh snow. And when we'd driven in, the animal had been bleeding in the car. And there was a blood trail all the way from where we shot it down to uh, where we were. <laughs> so the next thing, okay, we got this. Now we got to get rid of the guts. So we're by a lake, so let's drag this down, chop a hole in the ice, and throw it in. So we did that, but the guts floated, and right. they, they froze. So everything was sort of fine for the next day. We managed to cut it up, and of course, it's freezing outside, so we wrapped it all in brown paper and stacked it and out by the wood pile. And uh, everything was going fine and fired up the cook stove, got some coffee going, got some breakfast going, and uh, looked out the door and who's coming up the path but the game warden. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Your heart's just thumping at this well, point. Well, yeah, and, but we knew him. He'd gone to school with my mom. Okay. He was a good guy. So came in and... Hi, hi, Bruce. Oh, hi, Marshall. Oh, what you doing? Oh, hunting. What, what are you hunting? Oh, rabbits. Oh, yeah, hunting rabbits. Hmm. Okay. So he looked around. We'd sort of cleaned up inside. He said, geez, you must have really got a shitload of rabbits. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, all the blood all over the place. He said, uh, what'd you do with the rabbit guts? Threw him in a lake. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he had coffee with us, and he left. And I saw him go out to his truck, and then head down to the uh, the lake, look in the lake. <laughs> yeah, he didn't believe you for one second. No. And then he just went up, got in his truck, drove away. <laughs> Years later, I ran across him. I'd been overseas, I came back, and I went up to the lake. Stopped in the coffee shop, and Bruce was in there. And he said, uh, oh, you've been away for a while. I said, yeah, I've been overseas. So he said, yeah, I heard. He said, uh, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I'm going to hunt ducks. He said, yeah. yeah. He said, there's a real pile of ducks out you know, on that little lake. He said, but... Uh, you know what how, what the limit is for ducks? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, there's a real low, load of them out there. If you get too many, uh, stop by the ranger station, drop off your extras. Sure. <laughs> he said, I don't want you to get further down the road and... Uh, get yourself in trouble. Get yourself in trouble. So this is sort of the arrangement that we, we had with the game warden and... My dad and I, every Thanksgiving, my mom would make Thanksgiving dinner and my dad would go to hunt rough grouse. 
But this one season, for some strange reason, gross season was opened late, but prairie chickens were open. Okay. So my dad and I, well, that's what we usually do. We go out. And anyways, we went out and we could shoot. We could maybe five or six grouse. We were coming back along a line cut, and who's coming up? Bruce, game warden. Yeah. Hi, how you guys doing? Mm, not bad. So what you got there? My dad, without skipping a beat, said prairie chickens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bruce said, yeah. He said, imagine finding prairie chickens up here in the bush. He said, yeah, pretty fortunate. <laughs> Yeah, okay, Bruce. <laughs> we'll see you. Oh, I love it. Bruce, Bruce was, a, there, there was a family that did a lot of poaching in our area. Okay. And uh, Bruce had the habit of every once in a while, particularly on a Sunday, going over to these people's house to visit. And sure. he was a friendly type of guy, and everybody knew him. And it'd be, you know, maybe a month before deer season opened and there'd be a venison roast in the oven cooking. Mm -hmm. And Bruce would go in there and sit there for a couple of hours. Right. <laughs> and uh, just to let them know that he knew what they were doing and <laughs> by the time he left, that venison roast was going to be well overdone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bruce sounds like a good guy. Yeah, he was. he was a... Great guy. We would, you know, pull little tricks every once in a while. And I remember once I'd gone out and one of my friends said, look, I, I can't get out. Can you knock a deer down for me? Here's my tag. Okay. Okay. Anyways, I went out and knocked a deer down for my friend and put his tag on it and his, you know, had his license. And I, dragging it out to the road and who comes along but Bruce. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, hi, he's, oh, hi. Oh, hi, Bruce. What you got there? Oh, four-point whitetail. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice one. Oh, let me take a look. I need to see your license and your tag. And the tag was like a boxcar tag that went through the, the leg, it was locked on, so he made sure that the tag was locked and he looked at my license. Sort of looked at me, smiled, and as he was going away, he said, okay, have a nice day, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there wasn't blatant, po there wasn't blatant poaching going on. It, you know, there was a little bit here and there. It, you know, I would say in the long run, probably the amount of poaching that went on was probably equal to the number of road kills. Sure. The last deer that my dad got before he passed away, he'd hunted all week and he hadn't got a deer. And he was going home. Deer jumped out of the ditch and he hit it with the, <laughs> with the car. <laughs> ah. And... Uh, Finished it off with a tire iron. and uh, Oh, jeez. So I've got quite a few pictures uh, going back of my dad was, you know, hunted. My uncles hunted. Everybody hunted. And there was a case where, you know, I think once my grandmother 
I went out as a youngster and I was quite excited because I shot two deer. Okay. And quite excited, got back to my grandparents and grandma, got a couple of deer. Why? Why did you shoot two deer? Well, because they were there. Right. She said, we only need one deer. Yeah. You know, you only you only need to take one, and you know, take two. That's greedy. Yeah. So the idea was, you take what you need, you know, not what you want. Good learning lesson. And again, you know, in those days, uh, I think basically there was icebox instead of a refrigerator. Right. But the nice thing about Manitoba is it's cold enough that all you need is a shed outside and <laughs> yes. the deer froze. My, my dad would hang up quarters of deer and then he had like a meat saw yeah. and basically go out there and saw off a steak or saw off a roast and it was frozen. You just had to eat the deer before it thawed <laughs> in the spring. Oh, I love it. But it, it was, you know, it was a different age and... I look at it and I go back that most of my hunting was done with a Lee Enfield 303. Right. Which, when you think of it, was originally a black powder cartridge. Right. And it's still in use today and it's still effective. I don't know any commercial guns that are still made for it. Mm. As you go around the country, there's still a lot of people that it was their first big game rifle. That's right. There's a lot to be said about it. It's accurate. It's available. It's simple. Yeah. And it's safe. Yeah. No, you still, it's still in use in a lot of remote communities. It's, yeah. uh, so basically, you, you know, I sort of grew up with a single shot Kui 12 gauge, right? 303, Lee Enfield, and basically the Kui 22. Sort of the holy trinity of the gun ownership. It really is, isn't it? <laughs> if you had that, you basically had everything you needed. You know? Yeah, go to any local gun show and you're going to see them out there in, in spades. Yeah. The only other thing you needed was a good knife. And then away you away Yes. You so you spent some time in the military. Yeah. Um, the military, coming, my dad during the Second World War was a fighter pilot. One of my uncles was a bomber pilot. One was in the Navy, one was in the Army. All my uncles, basically, were in the military during the Second World War. In the First World War, one of my uncles was killed, great uncles was killed. Uh, the other suffered injuries and ended up with what was called shell shock in those days, which right. would be PTSD today. Died quite early in mm. his life. And coming from a military background that can be traced back to the 30 years war in the 1600s and then actually before that. Wow. I'm probably, because mainly of my experiences, I'll probably be the last one in my line that will be in the military. Mm. I think it sent shivers of... <laughs> yes. But... You know, the way the world is going and, the, you know, the attitude of people. We have freedoms which people fought and paid for. And people don't give second thought to them today. The, the right to protest, for example. Right. Wasn't, you know, given to them by a bunch of radicals. It was given to them by 
what was won in wars with countries that wanted to deprive us of all those rights. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, because of my love of shooting, I got into cadets, and I've been in Army cadets, Air cadets, Sea cadets. And what I excelled at was marksmanship. Right. And, you know, as a young kid who could do something well and adults were impressed and you had the mentors who could take it th- you through it and to be able to go into competition, plus all the free shooting and free ammunition. You can't uh, go wrong there. You can't go wrong, you know. And, uh, and again, it's, uh, you know, a little bit... I sort of used to joke that uh, at the time it was one of the few, Olymp- you know, Olympic sports you could do lying down. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> All the others. When I got into coaching, which is natural progression from you know um, marksmanship, um, I always thought that uh, you know it's kind of interesting that people get hopped up if you're going into most of the sports, you basically get pumped up. Right. And the coach is there to pump up as people get them all excited. And a shooting coach is exactly the opposite. Yeah. You've got to calm them down, get them relaxed, yeah. you know, almost a type of meditation to be able to, to go through it. And probably my best successes in marksmanship is after I started coaching, I guess I started to follow what I was preaching. Right, right. Myself. Funny how that works. Yeah. And, you know, I was competing against people half my age. Okay. You know, and it's not necessarily a young man's sport. Hmm. Reaction time is faster for the younger. But as long as your health, that you don't have tremors and you, because... The whole thing with marksmanship is, you know, not supporting with muscles, but supporting with bone. Right. And basically, muscular muscular has nothing to do with marksmanship. Mm. Well, as long as you've got muscles in your finger. Sure. You, can, you can squeeze a trigger. I did quite well in rifle shooting. I wasn't that good with shotgun because it's two different techniques. Mm-hmm. So if I ever go for geese or ducks it usually takes me a little while to come up to speed that i don't have the marksmanship skills in shotgunning that i i do an interesting thing my dad was better with a shotgun okay than a rifle but he was air force and they trained with shotguns plus in a fighter plane they're doing a similar thing where they're using deflection sure so he was good at that and when I first started hunting with my dad, when I'd be about five or six, I had the Cooey single shot. My dad had an Ithaca. Mm. The deal was, if the grouse was on the ground, I had to shoot the grouse, but I had to shoot it in the head. Okay. If it took off, then my dad would shoot it with a shotgun, but his ethics were he would not shoot a sitting bird. Right. So now, just uh, a couple of hunting trips ago, I was shooting. I now shoot uh, th- mainly three oh eight. Right. Boys had just knocked down a couple of deer, and I was going back to the truck uh, to get some rope. And there were a couple of grouse, so two shots. I shot their heads off, 
And still got it. The boys came back. And I got out to the boys and they said, What were you doing? I said, Well, I shot a couple of grouse. What, the 308? Oh, don't worry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the amazing thing is, a lot of people would think that's really difficult, but technically it's not. No. And uh, it, it can be done, providing they don't duck their heads or whatever. Sure. But I guess part of it was honing the skills at a young age with, you know, shoot the head off a of gross. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah. A lot of practice. For fun at the range, for years, I would shoot pennies at 50 yards, 100 yards. Wow. And uh, recently I was wondering about, are my rifles getting bad or is my shooting getting bad? <laughs> so went down to Reliable and they had some Weatherby rifles that are now guaranteed one minute of angle right. out of the box. Right. For people who don't know, one minute of angle is one inch group at 100 yards, right. two inch group at 200 yards, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, okay, here's a rifle that's guaranteed. And now I've got a benchmark. I can, If I can shoot this rifle and my other ones are wonky. But again, a good ritual of cleaning your rifle, making sure everything's tight on it, following your proper procedures of trigger control, breath control, yeah. whatever. So what it's boiled down to in the last, I can go back probably 20 years and every year I get my deer or elk and it's, it's a one shot. Yeah. And people say, well, don't you miss? And I said, yeah, I either kill it or miss it, but I don't wound it. Right. And part of the answer there is I, I miss, I basically won't take a lot of shots. I pass them up. Right. No, you know, no, that's not a clear shot. A lot of people just, you know, I had a hunter with me once who, oh, uh, I took a shot at an elk at 300 yards. Why? Well, I wanted to see if I could hit it. Nope. Mm, not a good idea on this hunt. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> That's, uh, you only take shots, you know, you've got a reasonable chance of making. Yeah. On and, the animal, it's not the place to be testing your marksmanship skills. No, exactly. And you see, this is the problem with, you know, with a lot of people. The question has come up, particularly on some of the Métis hunts, and people have asked me, um, is hunting a sport? And my thought on it is, no, it's not a sport. I do traditional hunting, and it's something we do. But to me, a sport is a competition. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a prize given out. And from the traditional hunting aspect, it's something that we do that's part of our culture. Mm -hmm. And... It's, yes, there's a bit of a competition, but you're competing against yourself. Right. And as far as a sport, I don't think the animal would consider it. No, no. <laughs> that. So when we look at it, you know, it's, yes, shooting is a sport. I go to the range. I, I've certainly been at Bisley. I've been at Connaught. I've 
you know, being at different shooting competitions. And yes, you're competing against other people, but to me, killing an animal isn't a sport. Mm-hmm. No more than, you know, growing up, um, I would have to kill a chicken. Right. If you're going to have dinner on Sunday, I didn't consider it a form of sport. <laughs> no, not at all. It was something that had to be done. You know, um, you catch a fish, you bunk it on the head, um, you gut it. Yeah. Is fishing a sport? I guess you could consider that if it was catch and release. Right. I've never been a fan of catch and release myself. Well, not me either, because the thing is, I enjoy fishing. Sure. But again, you know, people have said, you know, what's a good hunt? What's a good fishing trip? And people will say, oh, if it's successful, oh, it's if you get game or you get fish. And the thing is that the areas that I've gone and the areas I've seen in British Columbia and elsewhere in the world, you wouldn't see unless you went out there to do that. Right. Just the experience with nature. And again, with the idea of the traditional hunt where you're providing food for the community, food for yourself and your family, and you're utilizing a resource that's there, and it's a renewable resource. Mm -hmm. So we go through rituals that acknowledge basically the sacrifice of the animal, Mm -hmm. the respect to the animal. And respect is something that is also from hygienic point. We are very careful we don't contaminate the animal. Um, one of the things I tell people when we're when we're hunting is that um, you treat the animal with respect. Right. You treat the meat with respect. You right. wouldn't you wouldn't take a meal uh, and throw it on the floor, drag it across the grass, you know, treat it with disrespect. So you have to treat the animal with respect, and you have to when the when the meat's there, it has to be treated with respect. And that makes sense, but go to your local butcher shop and take a look at the animals hanging there that are covered in mud and debris. And Well, this is it. And I, we, we butcher all our own meat. Sometimes my wife says, you know, why do you do all that work? And, you know, I said, because I care. Right. And if I come across something when I'm butchering that I don't like the looks of, then basically that gets discarded. Mm -hmm. But again, the hide, which a lot of people throw away, Mm -hmm. we use. That's where the drums come from. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the hooves that a lot of people throw away, the hooves are cleaned out and they're used for different regalia with natives or with Métis. Now, I don't think for the purpose of this podcast that we've established... Your, uh, your background within the Métis community, you were, <laughs> and I can always put a preamble in the, in, the, yeah. uh, in the beginning, but so the listeners know you had a, a very prestigious designation as captain of the hunt. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a culmination of a, of a journey. And growing up, being drawn to the outdoors and... Not being overly shy, I would approach people, particularly up in the 
Winnipeg River area, the northern Ontario, and ask them. So I had mentors who would show me how to skin a beaver. Mm -hmm. They would show me how to, this is how this is done. How do you set a trap for a muskrat so they don't suffer? The, right. dr the drowning traps. You know, there's a, there's a humane way to kill an animal and there's inhumane ways. Mm -hmm. And proper trapping methods, generally, it's a, it's a quick and merciful kill. I would learn these skills. And some of the skills that I learned and the history and the background, it got to the point that I would learn things like flint napping. Right. So, you know, how, do you, how was that done? You'd use and, a horn, would you? Or an um, antler? Basically, the antler or, you know, a, a piece of oak. Okay. Um, I learned things from the elders, how to find the former campsites along the Winnipeg River. Okay. It's funny because that's been passed on to my older son. It seems to be something in the, the genes. I don't know. Uh, but I was able to collect arrowheads and... Uh, Wow. Different artifacts. I knew the bush. When we went out to the cabin, Saturday morning, 7 o'clock, I was gone. Right. <laughs> Funnily enough, parents didn't seem worried about where you were as long as you were back for dinner. <laughs> A little different. And I would explore. And I would go into areas and I'd find stuff like petroglyphs and go ask the elders that I knew, and they were usually guys living in cabins in the bush who were trapping. And so I learned that it was something, then when I was about 12 years old, I met a woman, Barbara Johnston, in Winnipeg, and she was the curator of the Hudson's Bay Museum. Okay. And the Hudson's Bay Museum at that time was in the Hudson's Bay building. Okay. And what she did is she held a program every Saturday for kids exploring the native heritage and, you know, what was going on. And she introduced me to a lot of the traditions, a lot of the things. And uh, at the same time, there was another fellow in the Manitoba Museum, Dick Sutton, who was very friendly to kids, and I learned an awful lot from him. So I started to basically associate with other Métis, and a lot of my friends, I'd spend time with them, and learned the language, learned the rituals. Right. When we moved out to BC, I got together with a couple of people, who said, we need a Métis organization in Vancouver. And a lot of Métis organizations, they were all about exploiting people basically for money or sure. getting government grants or da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm. Luckily, I got into a group that was more interested in social issues. Okay. And question came up as to whether or not we were going to be um, political activists or social activists. So we decided 
to hell with the politics end of it. Sure. Let's work with it. And we formed the Vancouver Métis Community Association. Now, a lot of people don't understand that Aboriginal rights are not individual rights. They're community rights. Right. And a person gets those rights by being a member of a community. So it has to be a person has to be active in that community to get into it. Right. So at that time, the I met a fellow, Dan LaFrance, who had been or was at that time the provincial captain of the hunt, which is a traditional role within the Métis community that any organized hunt has a captain and they're in charge. Okay. But it's not an appointed position. It's elected by the hunters. Right. So I became vice president of Vancouver Métis Community Association and captain of the hunt. What that meant was organizing the hunts, setting the rules for the hunt, conducting the hunts, and distributing uh, you know, meat to the people in the community who couldn't hunt. Not wouldn't hunt, but couldn't. Ah. I would get people who would say, oh, I hear you guys are getting free meat. You know, like, uh, hey, well, why don't you knock one down and drop it over at my place? And I said, well, do you think you can get off the coach and quit watching TV long enough? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll knock an animal down for you, and then you can come up to the Kootenays, and you can gut it and drag it out to the truck and transport it back home and butcher it. And, Good no, for no, you. No, 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 I, I don't want, I just want the meat. <laughs> doesn't work that way. No, you have to participate. And um, again, a lot of single mothers, elderly people, and, um, you know, the the whole thing is it's a meat hunt. Right. And, you know, as I explained to one of our young hunters, she said, oh, you know, I don't know if I can sh shoot an animal. I said, well, Standing up, it's an animal. Lying down, it's meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I said, you know, just do it, you know, quickly and properly. And, you know, and again, having friends who are in the butchering trade and you look at animals that are typically abused in transport, pork, beef, mm. where they're transported. And, you know, people say, well, I think... Myself, if I had to go, I wouldn't mind being shot. I'd like to be in a field thinking about something else, and then boom, yeah, I'm gone. You chase an animal, you stress an animal, and all those hormones, all the adrenaline, all those hormones are pumped through the system. Mm. And butchers have told me about meat, particularly pork, that's inedible because the animal's undergone tremendous stress before it was killed. Mm. And, uh, you know, being starved, being transported, being moved from place to place. And I think, again, it, I look at quality of meat. Mm -hmm. I would rather take a younger animal, a yearling, if I can. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and as far as ethics, it's not that we're out there 
slaughtering animals and you know bloodlust and the thing is that uh, with the prayers that are done afterwards when you kill an animal you basically do a prayer show respect to the animal and uh, we also you know use of either tobacco or sweet grass as a sacrament mm. and you know make a significant gesture of what you've done that it's not just a casual stomping on an ant on the sidewalk and walking away that mm-hmm. you've basically extinguished the life and one of the things in the rules of the hunt is we look at the sanctity of life and the permanence of death mm-hmm. and if you look at your stakes the same way <laughs> most people don't is, no it's it's just you know so i think if you look at it and you realize where meat comes from that it doesn't it's not manufactured in the back of savon mm-hmm. in plastic packages <laughs> that you know it actually came from a living thing you're mentioning earlier before we started recording that you've got three rules that you pass on to the younger hunters yeah well a couple of things there we um, one of the things that we look at is that life is a precious thing mm-hmm. and you don't kill things needlessly so i remember with one one young fellow we hey can i shoot that bird can i shoot that bird well, why do you want to shoot the bird well, i just want to shoot the bird you going to eat it no 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 i just i just want to kill it hey three things you can kill it if it's going to eat you you can kill it if you're going to eat it and you can kill it if it's out of balance and it's causing a problem in basically in the environment mm. otherwise leave it alone yeah good rules okay <laughs> so we're on one hunt and my friend young daughter and son i think his daughter was 6 and the son was 8 and we'd set up a little shooting range beside the by the camp and they were there shooting at tin cans don't shoot at bottles they break tin sure. cans you know, they're okay even more fun if they've got pop in them sure yeah yeah <laughs> on a hot day anyways uh, the young girl came to me and she said uh, can we shoot those bloody squirrels i said well why why do you want to shoot the squirrels well you, know, you keep bothering us So I sat down and I said here's the deal you know right are they going to eat you or are you going to eat them or are they out of balance and what not I said got it yeah you know I understand So about an hour later she they came back with two ice cream pails full of dead squirrels There's dinner So I said what's going on He said how do you clean a squirrel I said, "Well, you you know how to clean a deer." Yeah. I said, "Well, it's just a smaller package." Oh, okay. So, they got busy with their knives and they got it and cleaned the squirrels, skinned them. And they said, "So I said, you're going to eat the squirrels." Well, yeah, that's why we killed them. Okay. So, that time we had elk hanging up and deer and uh 
my buddy and I were had the frying pan and the teepee and fire going and we're cooking some tenderloin and onions and all that. Yeah. The kids were busy. A little girl came to me and she said, do we have any toothpicks? I said, you know, there's a whole forest of them out there. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. And off <laughs> she went, came running back. So they had sticks with squirrels on them. Yeah. So I said, uh, do you guys want some elk tenderloin? No, we've got squirrel tenderloin. Yeah, proudest punch, I'm sure. And they'd taken the tenderloins out of the squirrels, and they're like as big as your little finger. <laughs> and they'd done exactly the, what they, they, they all knew what to do with a deer. Okay. So I said, okay. So the next question came out. Okay, we're going to cook the squirrels on a stick. How do we know when they're done? I said, that's a very good question. I said, she said, because, you know, I said, when you can pull the meat off, they're done. Oh, okay, got any barbecue sauce? Yeah, <laughs> here's a barbecue sauce. So they sat there eating squirrels. <laughs> I love it. But again, the thing was, nothing goes to waste. Right. And, oh, and, and then they wanted to know, could they eat the squirrels' livers? And I said, no, I think we'll draw the line there. You See, know, I've I said, never had squirrel liver. I've... I said, you know, you never know what the little devils have been eating. And I said, uh, I'm not familiar with any known recipe for squirrel liver. Yeah, no, me neither. You know, <laughs> there's a chef in the States. Uh, his name's Hank Shaw. He's got oh, a number I, yeah, of books. I'm familiar okay. with him, yeah. So uh, we had the pleasure of doing some foraging with them in the Sierra Nevada mountain range and the topic of squirrels came up and of course I've eaten squirrels I haven't had squirrel in years but when I was a teenager I would go and hunt squirrels and preteens and of course had to cook up everything we ate and but he was mentioning that a very small percentage and I went and I researched it afterwards and sure enough Hank definitely knows what he's talking about very small percentage of squirrels will carry the bubonic plague. <laughs> and that's that little tidbit of information was enough to just turn me off the idea of squirrels, although I do see them coming back in popularity. I know a meat eater, uh, Steve Rinella, talks about squirrel all the time. But Well, there's the dark side. I took a course in parasitology. Right. Now, what happens is... Domestic animals, sheep, cattle, they get dewormed. Right. They go through, you know, the, what do they call it, the baths. They get rid of ticks and stuff like that. And so consequently, the average white-tailed deer has 10 different parasites in it. In it. And in it and on it. Right, okay. And there's everything from nose worms brain worms, lung worms, and then there's the whole set of intestinal worms, right. and then there's uh, leg worms. Generally, in an animal, and most of the meat and even the urine is sterile. Any contamination of the meat comes from outside. This is why we're careful we don't cut the gut bag or intestines. Right. That's where the majority of the bacteria are. That's where the E. coli, the listeria, all the bad stuff is. So that's why we're very cautious about it. 
So we minimize that. But most people who shoot and basically do a deer. Uh, in England, there's a great series called Best Practices. Okay. And it's available online. And in England, because game is owned by the landowner, mm -hmm. people can shoot animals and sell them on the open market. Okay. So when you go to markets in England, you can see pheasants, rabbits, and small deer, and even the supermarkets will be selling venison. So what happens is in best practices, it shows how to examine an animal for, call it flaws or contamination. Sure. And it's something that isn't taught here. No, it isn't. And when we're up in the Kootenays, um, when you get a white-tailed deer and you knock it down, you'll see little insects on it. Mm -hmm. And the insects are, they look like a tick. Right. But they're not. Okay. Okay, and this is where a little education comes in. A tick has eight legs. Right. It's a member of the arachnid or spider family. These have six legs, so they're a bug. They're an insect. Okay. And what they are is they're a fly that flies on to the deer, chews its wings off, and then crawls around on it, sucking blood. Interesting. And you'll see them, and they move a lot faster than a tick. Yeah. But what'll happen is they don't cause disease. But again, uh, you know, people look at it and think, oh, it's ticks. No, right. ticks won't be running. You know, they'll be attached or crawling very slowly. So knowing this other stuff, and this is where, you know, I sometimes find fault with our system where you can get a firearms license and you can get a hunting license without ever firing a shot. Yeah. And in Germany, it could take you five years to get your hunting license, and yeah. you're going to have to prove your marksmanship, and you're going to have to know all about dogs, their diseases, and to go further, you've got to know hunting songs, and the melodies, and the procedures. They do a similar one over there of the last meal. Okay. Where it's very similar to basically the Aboriginal, where they'll put a twig in the mouth, and they'll signify, you know, that they've taken the life of the animal and mm. show that respect. And that's missing, basically, in a lot of our hunting here. Yeah, it really is. You know, I, I think when you do something as significant as take an animal's life, I think you should, you know, make a point of looking at it from a solemn point. Well, that tradition that you practice is also passed down. Yeah. I mean, you could have that... You could have that in your head. It could be a solemn experience for you, but anybody else watching that might not share that same experience by actually enacting through the tradition and going through it. You're ensuring that it's going to be passed down to other generations. We uh, we were on a hunt, and I had a young boy with me, the son of one of the hunters, and he was very intrigued with our rituals of what we're doing. And it was an antlerless season, and I knocked down a doe. Okay. So I was teaching him the ritual. 
So the animal was down, and I didn't have any tobacco with me. It was in the truck. So he's there, and I said, you can always adapt. So I said, get a branch off that spruce. So we got it, and we put it in the animal's mouth as the last meal. And then I did the prayer where I thank you, Brother Dear, for giving up your life for our sustenance. I thank the Dear Nation for giving up its member, and we wish prosperity and whatnot. Anyways, the little kid nudges me and says, it's a she, not a he. <laughs> I said, I don't think it'll make a difference. <laughs> oh, I gotta love it. But the kids will, like I said, follow what you do. Mm. If you do the wrong thing, they'll imitate you. If you do the right thing, they'll imitate you. Mm -hmm. So if you show them the right thing, and this is something with, with young hunters, uh, this young boy had been hunting with us for, oh, I guess since he was about five or six. And uh, first time he came out with us, he, he, he was just our watcher mm -hmm. in the truck. Then he progressed to, we gave him a rifle with no bolt in it. Sure. And all the time we were correcting, watch where it's pointed, keep your finger off the trigger. Now it didn't matter because he couldn't do anything, but we were teaching him a procedure. Sure. And he was very careful, diligent about, yeah, okay, he pointed in the wrong directions. But I always remember he was with us on a hunt and we were hunting for elk. And the funny part up in the Kootenays, you'll see white-tailed deer in the vicinity of the elk, but you won't see mule deer for some mm -hmm. reason. And maybe the muleys and the elk don't get along, but the white-tails seem to be integrated with them. So we're driving along this bush road. There's sort of an open area. And slowing down, there's a bunch of white-tail. So little guy says, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? I said, what is it? What is it? Whitetail. Oh, so we get out and stalking up to see if there's a good buck there. And he said, what are we looking for? I said, whitetail. Well, what, what about the elk? I said, there's no elk, there's whitetail. So you, you don't care about the elk? <laughs> no, I don't care about the elk. And then I look down and I realize that he's about three feet shorter than I am. Mm -hmm. So I put my head down to his level and there behind the spruce is a herd of elk that wow. he, he can see. Wow. And I can't. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, when you've got the young people with you, that they see things differently. Mm -hmm. And when we're spotting and looking for things, sometimes, as they say, a fresh pair of eyes or a new pair of eyes, they see things, and of course, with him from a different level. Very different perspective, yes. And from a safe point, we then went where, onto a ranch where there was a fence line, and we're looking for elk. So I, we knew there were elk in the area, so we set the little fellow up on the fence line his dad went one way and I went the other way. And I came back and I said, 
see anything? He said, yeah. He said, Bolauk just came over the fence about five minutes ago. I said, did you have a clear shot? Yeah. I said, why didn't you take it? <laughs> My dad's over that way. Good for him. So again, the right answers. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times it takes more guts to not take a shot. <laughs> oh yeah, oh definitely. Uh, to take it. And, you know, the consequences of it, it you know, it's, you know, I always say that uh, a bullet's like a word. Once you've let it loose, you can't get it back. You yeah, know? no, that's very true. So again, you look at teaching safety. Uh, you know, we all want to be safe. Mm -hmm. And we, we've had some, you know, sort of bad accidents at times, but we've been prepared. We had one where probably the worst scenario is knocking down an animal just before dark. Mm -hmm. But you got to realize that a lot of the animals we hunt are most active just before dusk. Sure. So we had one situation where a party of two, one of the elders and a woman, he just knocked down an elk and they were basically gutting it in the dark, mm -hmm. which they weren't prepared for. Uh, what had happened there was while he's gutting, he's pushed one of the legs out and yelled at her, grab this. And she reached out and he had his knife in his hand. Oh, no. And she reached out and grabbed the knife and slashed her right across the palm. Mm -hmm. Now, the bad part about that was I'd made it back to camp and we carry radios. Mm -hmm. And anyways, I've got the radio on and because everybody's coming back. And I get this call from her and said, this is Jane. Yes, Jane, what's going on? Uh, I've hurt myself. Where are you? I don't know. Oh, geez. <laughs> so I said, okay, um, what have you done? I've cut myself. How badly? Bad. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, okay, uh, who are you with? You know, I'm with Pete. Okay, um, I want you to lie down, get Pete to make a snowball, put that in your hand, and I want you to lie down and hold your hand up in the air. Mm -hmm. Now, where are you? Well, I think we're down, uh, down the power line road. Okay, how far are you down the power line road? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you past the cattle guard? I think so. I said, okay. I'm gonna drive the power line road and I'm going to flash the headlights. I said, I'll bring the other guys with it, with you. Do you have a flashlight? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to flash the lights. When you see our the headlights, you know, do it. So anyways, we got her out, but she was cut pretty bad, and we ended up having to take her into Cranbrook Hospital. Mm. The, the only good part about that is... When we got animals, I like to have latex or ni uh, nitro gloves on. Right. And while we were waiting in the emergency room, there were quite a few of those laying around in boxes. So <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> we, got, we got a supply for that. <laughs> but uh, prior to taking her to the hospital, just for a hint, they still have first aid stations on the highways. 
Really? And you'll see signs, first aid station, certainly. But we were lucky there was a mill that was operating close by, and they have industrial first aid people. Right, they do. So we went to the mill first, and they looked at it, and they said, no, you better get her to the hospital because we think tendons could be cut, and it's going to need some serious stitching. Right. That's a good tip, actually. Yeah. So, again, being prepared, and this is where I just shake my head in the news that I think it was just recently a bunch of uh, snowmobilers went up country and got snowed in like does anybody look at the weather forecast i know i had uh, one of the situations with one of the youngsters one day they came along and you know it's my turn to get a deer it's my turn to get a deer we, we, we let them have turns yeah i want to get a deer i want to get a deer okay but look at the sky yeah 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 no no look at the sky well, i want to get a deer i want to get a deer okay let's go get you your deer so we drive up to what we call the deer fields. Sure. And, okay, there's your deer. So get out. He's a good shot. Mm-hmm. So down goes the deer. And he's, okay, do I got it? No. Throw it in the back of the truck. Well, don't you usually got it? Yeah, we usually, but look at the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, I got a deer, I got a deer. Okay. <laughs> so we go back, and there's a snow squall coming in. <laughs> Yeah. It starts with rain and it's going to be miserable. So we've got the teepee set up and my buddy and I go in the teepee and we take the two boys, throw the deer off in the meat cache, which is away from the teepee. And uh, so, okay, you got the radio? Yeah, okay. Well, we're going back to start the fire in the teepee. Well, about 10 minutes later... um, have you, uh, you, got, got, you got everything? Yeah, we got everything. Okay. So next thing is, hey, uh, you guys, can you bring us some water? What do you need water for? I thought you had everything. Well, no, we don't. And, you know, Brian's cut the gut bag on the deer. Oh, no. Okay, we'll bring you some water. So get in the truck, a couple of canteens, throw it out the window. By this time, it's pissing with rain. Yeah. And it's really coming in. And uh, next thing we get back and uh, and it's, uh, okay, uh, how are you guys doing? Oh, pretty good. You got it hung up yet? Oh, yeah, yeah. We're gonna, you know, okay, uh, only about 100 yards back to the teepee. They come in like a couple of wet rats. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sit down, take your clothes off. You know, the fire's going one thing and another. And I said, so what did you learn? What do you mean? I said, what did you learn? Well, a couple of things, I guess. Okay, so what was that? Well, when you tell us to look at the sky, <laughs> we should look at the sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's number one. I said, you know, and what's number two? Well, well, number two, I guess, make sure you have everything. Mm. I said, yeah. And anything else? Mm, can't think of anything. Uh, how about don't cut the gut bag? <laughs> Uh, life's full of those learning lessons, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, it was funny. We had a new hunter uh, one of the last trips, and he said, why are you guys so careful about cutting the gut back? Why don't you want to cut the, cut the gut back? What is it? So one of the other kids took him over, and the guts were on the ground. He said, here, put your head down here. <laughs> he put his head down. And 
Oh, jeez. Pop, pop detonator. Yeah. Oh, now I understand. Hey, some people have to experience it. Well, one of the, one of the other ones happened with my with my son, and uh, he got the chance of his first six point elk. Nice. And uh, we we're on ranch land, and uh, you know, it's, I think everybody should. They're not great meat because they're in the rut, but mm. you know, I think okay. I'm not a trophy hunter, but I think, yeah, okay, get one in your lifetime and sure. save that. So, and they smell. Hmm. So anyways, he takes a shot at this thing, good shot, sort of quartering away from him. And it goes right in, does like a heart shot on it, and it crumples into a barbed wire fence. So now <laughs> we've got oh, a six rack in a barbed wire fence. Yeah. So anyways, we extricated it from there. And uh, okay, we're not supposed to gut it on the on the ranch land because if you gut, nothing will grow there for mm -hmm. about a year. So we're supposed to take it into the tree line. So get it into the back of the truck. So it takes us, by this time, probably 20 minutes, half an hour, and the, the animals start to bloat pretty quick. Sure. So anyways, trying to get the elk into the back of the pickup truck, and my son's behind it, behind it, okay. pushing. Oh, no. And it gets into the back of the truck and lets this big elk fart out. <laughs> and right in, right in my son's face. <laughs> so we had to, he goes, immediately starts to gag and then <laughs> goes over to a tree and yeah. throws his breakfast up. And so he's got that now, the epithet that, uh, you know, the one thing he can't stand is elk farts. <laughs> no <know>. kidding. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, you were talking earlier about some jewelry that you're making. Oh, I dabble a little bit with, with different type of jewelry. And one of the things that we do is we try to utilize whatever we can. Mm-hmm. The bones of the animals is kind of hard to deal with. However, not too hard. You can make stock with them. Mm. Um, one of the things with game meat particularly is, and it's the same thing with commercial meat, a lot of the taste is in the fat. Right. And pork fat tastes different than beef fat, which tastes different than lamb fat. Right. And... What happens is venison or elk, the fat can affect the taste. And when there's a gamey taste, if you basically package up your meat with a lot of fat in it, the fat can go rancid. And right. then it'll give... So when we butcher, we try to eliminate the fat and, and whatnot. With the stock, the stock usually isn't... You know, what, what we do is roast the bones first and then make stock with them. So you've got your venison stock. With the, the bones, we can take them and it's kind of labor intensive, but we can make the bone beads. Right. The pipe beads. So I make those and uh, also the spacers out of the elk bone. Mm. I've made decorative jewelry by cross-cutting the shank bone 
and uh, make like a pendant. Okay. With the beavers, yeah. um, the beaver teeth, which can be up to three inches long, are the same, almost the same profile as a person's wrist. So you can make a really neat bracelet. So I'm always on the lookout for, you know, the beaver skulls. When I was a kid, I would go to a lot of the trappers' cabins, which they would usually take off in the summer and they'd be there in the winter. And there would usually be a, a lot of beaver skulls hanging around, you know, around the property. Right. And we could get those. Uh, muskrat was a little bit smaller. You could make a, a different type of jewelry out of it. What would happen is that with different types of bone beads and the glass beads. And sometimes we'd get to uh, like an old campsite, and if we sifted the sand, we could get the old trade beads and oh, very the cool. different things. So one year I was up at Arcacho, we'd been called up. Uh, the kids were shooting beavers, and they needed some safety tips on how to shoot at a pond because uh, basically the beavers are in the water and there's the eventuality that a bullet could bounce off and keep traveling and they have to be aware that it could. Right. So they were doing quite quite well and I got kind of friendly with one of the fellows, the young fellows and his mother and uh, I casually asked him, I said, hey, uh, what, what, what do you do with the beaver teeth? Yeah. Oh, nothing. We throw them away. So I said, uh, "Well, have you got some?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some. I said, "Can I get them from you?" Oh, okay, if you want them. What are you going to do with them? I said, "Well, make bracelets." Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, you can have them. So that night, I got invited over to the house, and we had dinner and big pot of stew, you know, and uh, supalali, which is a Indian ice cream, it's okay. like a, kind of an interesting, I, I really like it. Anyways. Uh, what, sorry, what's it called? Uh, Supalali, it's, um, okay. it's a dessert that's made from, what do they call it, buffalo berry. Okay. And um, it has a, like a saponin in it, like a soapy thing. And it can be beaten up into like a meringue type okay. thing. And it has a taste sort of similar to Campari. It has that bitter yeah. sort of taste in it. And they beat it up with an egg beater and sugar. Interesting. Okay. And very light dessert. Yeah. Uh, they used to, what was the name? They, they had a couple of native restaurants here, I think. Uh, Makamak was one of the earlier ones. Okay. They used to serve it. Anyways, the meal was sort of finished and we were having the soup alale, And I said... Uh, said to the young fellow, so I said, so the beaver teeth, where are they? He said, oh, I think they're somewhere at the bottom of the stew pot. <laughs> fished them out. <laughs> was that your first time eating beaver? Uh, probably not. Um, <laughs> when I was younger, I'd always heard that beaver tail was a delicacy. Okay. So one of my trapper friends one day he was skinning a couple of beavers, and I said to him, hey, can, can I have the tails? What are you going to do with them? That was always the question. Mm -hmm. I'm going to eat them. Oh, yeah, okay. So he cut them off and gave them to me. And I tried cooking them, and they didn't really... Never turned out, eh? 
not the way I wanted. And okay. I'm not quite sure what I was expecting, but uh, I've heard stories on that that it's either absolutely terrible or they actually are quite good if cooked properly. Well, there was an old native woman up at Quinell. She had a cabin. We used to go up hunting there, and she was quite an old gal, lived by herself. And she used a beaver tail for greasing the frying pan. Okay. And she kept it hanging by the stove. I don't know how old it was. <laughs> but uh, she would make pancakes. With beaver tail fat. Yeah, and she'd basically get the frying pan going hot, and then she'd have the beaver tail swooping around a couple of times, get the pan uh-huh. greasy, and then do that. Huh. And the the fat wouldn't be rancid at that point? I'm not sure. Yeah, but she used <laughs> it anyways. We were probably hung on. <laughs> anyway, we didn't throw up, so it was probably okay. <laughs> Pass that test. Yeah, well, as I say, it's, you know, sometimes it's, uh, I was on another expedition up north and a uh, fellow invited me over there. They, they're always good for inviting you over for dinner. And, you know, my wife would, I'd, phone in you know, how are you doing are you eating yeah and my my general rule for eating is that it, it has to be well cooked and other people have to be eating it <laughs> that's a good rule they've i've been sick either way where it wasn't cooked properly or it looked okay but for some reason nobody else was touching mm-hmm. it and i was hungry so i always make sure that there's those those two are met i remember going to this fellow and the, the other thing is you know dealing in native community you don't want to be questioning what they're offering you right you know it's a little bit insulting like, well, what, what's this thing in here you know oh totally yeah <laughs> you know if it tastes good and there's a lot of stews and everything going on and uh, you know as I say if it's well cooked well you know it's not yeah. going to hurt you you know the worst you're going to have the runs the next day or something I love it so Anyways, I got called over. Oh, you got to come over for dinner, you know. So I went over there, and of course, you know, brought six pack of beer and yep. sat down, and we were chatting about things. And oh, I'm gonna make dinner. What do you got? You know, I'll make some hamburgers, not hamburgers as we know it, but basically fried hamburger. Okay. So, anyways, hamburgers, hamburger, right? So. Anyways, we go ahead and have a couple of these hamburgers. That's really good, you know. Lots of ketchup and, you know, some beans with it and whatnot. Hey, where's your outhouse? Oh, just out the back door. So I go out there and there's a skinned half coyote hanging. (laughs) You're just having coyote burgers. Well, sort of the sequel to that is then I got into this little couple of days later I got into this sort of little restaurant going up, you know, up the highway. And on the menu was, they had the different burgers and they had a coyote burger and they had a wolf burger and buffalo burger. Okay. And I'm thinking, is this just what you're calling them or is this what they're actually made of? (laughs) (laughs) Can't say I've ever had coyote. Well, I, I had a... Buddy, I, I used to hunt with. I started hunting with out here, and um, he shot a coyote one day, and he was skinning it. And he said, "Hey, look at this! Hey, Marshall, this meat looks really good." I said, "Yeah, but you know, I don't eat canines." Mm-hmm. So he said, "Yeah, but look at it. You know, meat, really good-looking meat." 
So I said, well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to take some of it. Make sure you cook it well. Mm-hmm. So anyways, this fellow, Gordy, he's eats coyote. He's eating cougar. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a reason why people say, do you like vegetarians? I said, yeah, they're the only kind I eat. <laughs> um, you see, you look at bear, which is an omnivore. Mm-hmm. You look at pork, pigs are omnivores. Mm-hmm. And of course, we can get tapeworm, whatnot from them. Mm-hmm. And I was discussing this just the other day with the coronavirus, that the fact that the major ancient religions, you know, Judaism, Islam, they had dietary rules. Sure. And they were there for a reason. They called pork unclean Mm -hmm. because, of course, they didn't know what the problem was in those days, but they knew that some people who ate pork got sick. Mm -hmm. Some people who ate shellfish got sick. Mm -hmm. So, hey, let's be careful. So if you look, going back to the parasitology, if you look at the life cycle of parasites, what happens is if you vegetarians, like animals, vegetarian mm-hmm. animals, um, don't have the parasites that are passed on to carnivores. Right. But Which carnivores sense. who eat other carnivores will pass that on with the life life cycle of them. Right. So I was asked a couple of trips ago to look at some elk liver. Um, I always laugh and say, I'm an organ donor. You want my liver? You can have it. <laughs> After taking the course and finding out what the liver does and certain things, um, I became a little leery about eating liver. Mm-hmm. Upcountry, I take a look at this liver, I cut it open, and it's got cysts, not liver flukes, which are fairly common. Right. It's got cysts in it. Okay. They're called hydatid. Okay. Now, this has a funny lifestyle uh, cycle. I get this out of a elk. It's basically a herbivore. Right. Where did it get it? From eating grass that has the cysts on it. Right. So the, a carnivore the, the defecated eggs. on the grass? or Yeah. So what happens is I can't get hydatid from the vegetarian. But if those people were to feed that liver to a dog, mm. I could get it from the dog shit. Right. The wolf carries it on by eating the liver, poops it out on the grass. It sits there for a while, and then the cycle is another herbivore comes along and digests it, and it goes through the cycle. Hmm. So that sort of put me off on liver, and that's why I say I'm an organ donor. (laughs) I guess so. But uh, that being said, uh, they say you go back to looking at an animal and saying, you know, okay, is there any sign here? Um, Intestinal worms, well, they're going to stay in the intestine. Mm -hmm. Lung worms are going to stay in the lung. So there's very few parasites that are actually going to be within the muscle. 
with the exception of tapeworms. Right. And a friend of mine um, shot a bear last year, and he said, how do I tell, check for tapeworm in the bear? I said, look in the diaphragm. Okay. Because the diaphragm, the muscle in the diaphragm is so thin that if, when you cut it out, you can hold it up to the light, and you'll see it. And you'll see it. See. Used to do freshwater fish also. I used to get jackfish, pike, and right. pickerel. And again, they can have worms in them. Mm -hmm. And how you check them out, again, is hold the tail up to the light, and you can see the cysts. Uh, that's a good tip. So you, you look at it that way, and again, I guess, but sort of the good news is a well-cooked worm isn't going to hurt you. Yes, you know, that's... <laughs> so again, go back to cook it well. Right. You know, and again, you know, when I go through the horrors of commercial meat, interesting story with my friend Gord. We were sitting on a hillside one day, and we were talking about cleanliness of animals. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, the creator was pretty smart. And I, I'm used to Gord. Yeah, yeah, Gord. Okay. <laughs> I agree. He said, you know, he put the arsehole behind them. Sure. I said, yeah. He said, that's good placement. He said, no animal walks in its own excrement. Mm-hmm. He said, they drop it behind them. Mm -hmm. He said, when you shoot a grouse, you smell its feet. I said, no, I don't. <laughs> you should. He, he said, I do. He said, you should smell its feet. He said, its feet smell clean. Hmm. Well, okay. He said, you ever smell a chicken's feet? Well, he said, not recently. <laughs> so he said, chicken feet stink. He said, they walk around in their own poop. Hmm. He said, that's not right. He said, you ever see a stockyard? Yeah. Mm -hmm. He said, the cattle are covered with poop from head to tail. Sure. He said, deer don't do that. Elk don't do that. Wild animals are clean. Domestic animals are dirty. Interesting observation. So he said, then they piled them in a truck and they take them to the slaughterhouse. Mm -hmm. And he said, they bop them on the head, kill them. And he said, they all fall down on the floor. Mm -hmm. He said, then they pull the hides off. He said, all that poop is on the outside of the animal. Mm -hmm. He said, so you buy a whole animal and it's it's okay. And he said he said, all the contamination is on the outside. He said, but you have to be careful because they also wash the inside. Mm. So he said, if you take a roast and you cook it, it'll kill all the bacteria because none of the bacteria has gone inside the meat. Mm. Okay. He said, but they also grind the meat up and sell it as ground hamburger. Right. And he said, that's why you have to cook a hamburger all the way through to kill all the bacteria because it's been spread all through the hamburger. 
Good observation. So he said, but if you have a clean piece of meat that you've cut up yourself and you haven't, like a wild animal, he said, you can make hamburger and you can have a rare hamburger. And that's the best way to have a burger. Yeah. So, you know, it goes down to the fact of, you know, things, sometimes customs were made for a reason. They're not just a fluky thing. You think, okay, so kosher, you know, kosher food, it's weird. No, there was a reason for it. Sure there was, yeah. You know, and again, when we look what's happening, you know, in China with, you know, throw another bat on the Barbie and <laughs> one thing and another, yeah. um, you know, again, it, it's cleanliness and hygiene. I've never known anybody to get food poisoning from wild game. It could be people out there, but again, sure. uh, most of it is dealt with. Um, I do have a problem with some, uh, I don't go commercially to have my meat cut up. Right. Um, it's not the fault. It, it's the way of the individual butcher. It's the way it's done. Um, I always do head or neck shots on the animal. Mm. So my son took meat back to Manitoba and he had some of it made up into sausage. <clears throat> took it to the local game butcher and had it made up. So he phoned me and he said, I thought you shot that animal in the neck. I said, yeah. He said, well, I just got my sausage back and gave it to some of my friends and there's bullet fragments in it. Wasn't it your animal? I said, yeah. I said, well, you know, the butchers have to batch it. Mm -hmm. So you don't know what, what you're getting. You know, they need like 50 pounds to make sausage and you've only got 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. Put another 10 pounds in there and then uh, divide the sausage up uh, the same way. Mm -hmm. That's why. And for years and years, I was convinced that I never got the tenderloin back. Mm. The choice bits. So I used to have to tell my butcher, I want everything labeled individually. Or it could be the other way. We had a group hunt recently and... I'm like you, I'll butcher my own animal. We had the tenderloin at camp, yet when the butcher gave us back our meat, we had another tenderloin. <laughs> so I guess oh, we lucked out on that one. They uh, had a, a, a friend up, up country, uh, Grant, who was captain of the hunt up in the Kootenays, and he worked on one of the ranches, and they, they had buffalo on the ranch. One of the foremen one day said, uh, oh, Grant, could you kill a buffalo for me? He said, yeah, I could. What do you want me to do with it? Well, I want you to take it into the butcher for me. He said, well, if I kill it, I've got to gut it. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, wh whatever. So anyways, Grant thought, hmm, okay. So he went out, selected the buffalo, killed it, got the backhoe, brought it in, gutted it. Yeah. Took the tenderloin out. Yeah. Took it home. Took the buffalo into the butchers. So his boss went to pick the meat up, came back and he said, Hey Grant, yeah. I went to pick my meat up, my buffalo up and there was no tenderloin. 
Grant said, yeah, that happens sometimes. Some of those buffalo don't have tenderloin. <laughs> he said, really? Yeah. Well, a couple more days went by. He said, came back and he said, I talked to the butcher and the butcher said, all the buffalo have tenderloin. <laughs> he said, ah, he's probably lying to you. He probably took the buff, took the tenderloin himself. A lot of those butchers do. <laughs> a couple of days go by and he comes back and he says, no, he's convinced he didn't take it. And he said, no, he said, the uh, tenderloin called the butcher's cut. <laughs> what do you mean? He said, I'm the butcher. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, again, but uh, there's a little difference, as I say, the difference between a squirrel tenderloin and, <laughs> and a buffalo tenderloin. Well, it comes full circle. Yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do us a favor and consider subscribing. Until next time, I'm Travis Bader with the Silvercore Podcast. <laughs>